Hello, and welcome to this episode of Sunflower Sutras. I am your host, Tara, and today we have with us in the studio, Professor Dennis Etzel, Washburn Zone, showing some home team pride. But first, as always, a taste of the classics. One of my favorite literary crushes, no secret there, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This poem is titled The End of Fear. Though the whole heaven be one-eyed with the moon, though the dead landscape seem a thing possessed, yet I go singing through that land oppressed as one that singeth through the flowers of June. No more with forest fingers crawling free, o'er dark flint wall that seems a wall of eyes, shall evil break my soul with mysteries of some world-poisoning, maddening bush and tree. No more shall leering ghosts of pimp and king with bloody secrets veiled before me stand. Last night I held all evil in my hand, closed, and behold it was a little thing. I broke the infernal gates and looked on him who fronts the strong creation with a curse, even the god of a lost universe smiling above his hideous cherubim. And pierced far down in his soul's crept unriven the last black crooked sympathy and shame, and hailed him with that ringing rainbow name erased upon the oldest book in heaven. Like emptied idiots' masks, sins, love, and wars stare at me now, for in the night I broke the bubble of a great world's jest, and woke laughing with laughter such as shakes the stars. And with us today, we have a special treat. I know I say that every time, but I mean it every time. Professor Dennis Etzel. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Dennis Etzel Jr. I'm a lecturer here at Washburn University. I've worked here over 10 years. I'm a Topekan, born, raised, never left Topeka, and found my way into life through poetry. Last year, I had the honor of winning the Troy Scrogans Award and also the Topeka Arts Connect Artie Award in Literary Arts. I'm also a talk scholar for Kansas Humanities Council. And I also do poetry workshops around Kansas. And I just want to say, Tara, thank you for having this show. It's so great to have exposure to Kansas poets here. And there are things going on here in the heartland. <laughs> and, you know, you forgot one last thing uh, about yourself. You also uh, have a book out about once a year you churn them out more than anyone else i know well the funny thing is uh many of these poems i've been working on for a long time and that they just happen to come out now so for instance my fast food sonnets book it, i was so glad that won the kansas book award last year it was about my experiences at mcdonald's but because of that it took me a long time to write i wrote a few poems at a time here and there because of the trauma I had had at yes. McDonald's, and I wanted to write about it. So it actually took between 2003 and uh, about 2015 to write the book. So. That's about seven years of trauma? <laughs> yes, seven yes. years of trauma. I actually would like to just say that uh, my husband worked at McDonald's for four years, and the first time he heard you perform a piece from Fast Food Sonnets, he was just standing ovation. He... <laughs> I've been trying to get my hands on a copy of this book for about since it dropped. And every place I go to, it's always sold out every single time. Well, you can have this one. I have it on me right now. Oh, so, yeah. ha, look at that. There you go. Convenient so, here. <laughs> on top of being successful, incredibly generous. Now, uh, if you'd like to talk a little bit more just about your books, because you have by far the largest variety of topics you discuss in your poems. That's the thing, I guess, about poetry and just having read it for so long and just seeing the spectrum of writers and writing and the styles and the approaches to poetry. So I like to try to mix up things. I like to try to do different things in different strategies for different projects. So for fast food sonnets, for example, I use the sonnet form. I happen to be at the time just writing sonnets naturally. 
I accidentally was writing sonnets because I was <laughs> reading a lot of sonnets and figuring them out. And, you know, even the turn after eight lines that all sonnets seem to have and that my poems were turning into that. I wanted to break the sonnet form by not having rhyme and maybe going over 10. You know, it's not iambic pentameter by any means. And uh, writing about my experiences through that seemed to fit that form uh, versus another book of mine called My Secret Wars of 1984, which combines appropriating sentences from the different texts that I grew up with in 1984, as well as the texts that I enjoy now that I didn't have access to. And then also just some of the sentences that were about my own experience. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting book that I wanted to talk about. You've got a copy right there. Mm -hmm. And for the listeners at home, it's got really amazing art in it. So it's not just a literary treat. It's also quite the visual treat, too. But like you were saying, you appropriating these sentences, you've got sentences from outside sources that are from the 80s. So in a sense, and this might just be the history nerd in me, but mm -hmm. it felt like, now this is by no means an insult to age. It felt like bringing fossils to life. It felt like some kind of archaeological dig. Right. These sentences obviously had a different meaning when they were made. And you took them and you turned them into a totally different thing while still keeping the integrity of the sentence. It's not like you're doing word shopping. You're keeping these sentences as a whole, but you're turning them so personal. And that's what I really liked. If I remember correctly, you're quoting from things from comic books. You're quoting from news articles. You're, you're quoting mm -hmm. from many different sources. And yet you still are able to have such an emotional connection. Thanks so much. That's exactly what I meant for that. This was really inspired by a Ronald Johnson reading group that I was a part of over the summer of 2011. And Ronald Johnson was a poet who was born in Kansas, moved to San Francisco, started the Rainbow Motorcycle Club, you know, gay motorcycle riders, <laughs> rode extensively, and then moved back to Topeka when his health was failing and actually passed away in Topeka. So Ronald Johnson did the same thing, kind of appropriating things for his work but not on the level of like sentence that I did, but more of just phrases. And so one of his larger works called Arc does that. And I was just really drawn by that. So very much in the same reason that maybe it's a style called documentary poetics, that you're finding ways to fit documents, information into a poem. 1984 was really a year of struggle for me. So kind of backpedaling, I wrote a book called The Sum of Two Mothers about being raised by two women. And... One of the lines was about my mother coming out in 1983 and then Sandra moving in in 1985. And I thought, yeah, the year missing, that was a really horrible time of struggle for me for a number of reasons. And so that's what I really wanted to capture was that turmoil. Then, you know, relying on the texts for my lack of memory, you know, the texts that we read are a part of our lives. They become a part of who we are. That was the concept of doing that. I read through oh, Secret Wars, which was the Marvel comic books. And I read through Dungeons and Dragons manuals and everything had to come from that year. But the sentences had to do something. They had to have some kind of tenseness or they had to relate to what I was going through. I wasn't just randomly selecting sentences. You know, I knew that if I had the approach that all of these sentences would somehow have the same emotional feel or pull or they spoke to me that I could put them together and they would somehow make sense. Yeah. <laughs> or in other words, that the metaphor could be made just as we relate one thing to another thing. The metaphor is made from sentence to sentence that you're reading it through the context of what's in front of you and not the context that came out of. And so I was really happy that it turned out the way it did. Just that I had actually alphabetized the sentences. So I said, I'm just going to throw this to randomness and alphabetize them. And then from that, I broke up them into their stanzas. It's kind of prose poetry in a way. Yeah, and Elaine did the artwork for it. I always love trying to find a local artist Yes. to do. Yeah, Elaine Rodriguez. Yes, so shout out to Elaine. Uh, hi, miss ya. <laughs> <laughs> I never connected the two, and I have almost all of your books at home, and yet the idea now is so magical to think that a whole book of poetry is this secret 
expose between two lines in a previous poem from a previous book. Mm-hmm. In between the two lines exists a whole book. Mm. And that's just magical to me. Speaking of some of two mothers, that's another one that you brought. That was the first one that I read. And that's the first one that a lot of people around here really discovered your work, not just as a professor, but as an artist. Mm. This was actually, yeah, my first book. I went to KU for an MFA in creative writing. And my mentor, Joe Harrington, who also he has some really amazing poetry. He writes out of documentary poetics. Just have to give a shout out to his work. You know, I gave all of my poems to him. I said, what do you think? And then he divided them in half and said, you can either use this half or the other half. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the one thing you want to hear from, you know, but it was, he was true. It was really true. So I had to make that decision about writing about what could be difficult, what was sometimes traumatic for me. But also what was also joyful, which was about having two women raise me. You know, that just was really a great thing. That's what I wanted to do with this collection. It became part of my thesis. And then I wrote more poems and then sent them out and had some published in literary magazines. And then I sent it off for a chapbook. I think you can look at it as your trailblazer because in very recent times, micro poems and Mm -hmm. whether that means two lines or that means seven lines have become incredibly popular and the best selling poetry books right now are almost exclusively micro poems so don't think of it as shorter poems think of it as you are a maverick all right thank you (laughs) but on a more serious note you repeatedly mention your own sons Mm-hmm. which you've gained more since publishing this book. Yes. But I like how cyclical the nature of your poems are in that mm-hmm. book. You talk a lot about being brought up. You talk a lot about your family dynamics with mm-hmm. your mother mm-hmm. and then her partner mm-hmm. and your father. Mm-hmm. And you reflect a lot on not just what your father meant to you, but what your father means to you now and how that shapes you as a father right it was just it's very interesting and i don't see those kinds of poems often enough i feel i feel like a lot of women write about their children but i don't really see that many men writing about their children thank you that brings up a good thing i'm going on sabbatical this fall and one of the things i'll be working about is actually yeah writing more children-based poems and i luckily i am finding like poets out there doing that because it's kind of that hesitation like does anyone want to read these poems about children right like the children but the other thing i want to do is challenge toxic masculinity that's like one thing that's always informed my life is the damages that masculinity can do so i'll be doing more of that it's actually started now and i'm also pulling in mythology baseball and and also yeah you brought my father i'm working on another piece because uh, he had been in the Vietnam War. Now I'm experimenting with what's called documentary poetics, where I'm actually going into documents and pulling them in and figuring out how can I create like a poetic piece using image and words. So a lot of that also has to do with VA and Agent Orange and Mm. uh, all of those issues where people are thinking of descendants of Vietnam veterans and where that's just an ongoing battle about people's health issues and what the VA will cover and what they won't. This is what I was referring to. You have such a varied interest. It's always nice to learn other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's unfortunate what we share, Mm -hmm. but you don't always have to look at it that way. You can always consider that we are fortunate that we can finally talk about it. That's what I really take away from your poetry. Yeah, that's what I hope happens. Right now I'm actually stuck on this idea about poetry being a high form of ethics. Yes. So if your poetry is about life and you're thinking of humanity and connections and poetry creates community, poetry creates connections to others. And so that is the highest form of ethics. That's a form of ethics working out of that because poems shouldn't assault others. They shouldn't damage someone. And so that's one thing I'm thinking really of like, yeah, how do we survive trauma How do we talk about trauma? But we also want to make sure we don't re-trigger people. Yes. So the recent uh, Ichabod Speak Out project. So that was one I was thinking of that it's speaking out against sexual assault. 
and that people from both the Topeka community and Washburn community submitted poems for that anthology. You did. Yes. And they were great. <laughs> There's so much of a wall we build up around ourselves mm. when we think about ourselves as creators and as being creative. And we don't want to think of ourselves as writers, but anyone who does something as simple as keeping a journal is inherently a writer. And you basically have assignments like that where you have to tell people about your life and you're just trying to get them engaged to slowly psychologically implant the comfort that they are a writer. That's part of the reason that people like your classes so much is that number one, they feel safe there. And number two, they feel more comfortable with themselves as creative individuals. They don't get that wall by the end of it. They get that wall broken down at least a little bit at a time. You've got a very subtle, familial way of sharing your advice, which I love. And I would absolutely love it if maybe you'd have a little bit of advice that you'd like to share with our listeners about writing. Oh, sure, sure. Thank you. That, and thank you so much for the kind words. That's definitely something I try to strive for in my classes is that having the openness, having the safe environment, pulling back to ethics, the ethics of when you comment on a poem, we need to have the highest form of ethics there too. We're in a country that there's a lot of bullying. Like we need to do everything possible that we're not bullying. Yes. We need to fight bullying. And so that's an awareness of how we make gestures and comments to other people. Even me, I'm trying to cut down on getting angry at drivers, you know, like I am. Oh, wow, I need to calm down. You know, my sons are watching me, you know, and here I'm like, you, you know. I've been a part of so many bullying environments with poetry workshops. And that is horrible experience. Yes. And the more you go up in academia, the worse the experience can be. Yes. So, well, I've even been in a personal writing group, kind of like, well, this isn't poetry. What is that? You know, this isn't poetry. And it was like really a horrible feeling. And so that's my advice is take all that criticism and throw it over your shoulder because it doesn't matter. You just keep doing what you're doing. There is a difference between constructive criticism mm -hmm. and just blatant disregard. Yeah. And sometimes that disregard is just plain bullying. I have to yes. agree. I not myself been in a workshop with other writers, but my husband has, and mm -hmm. he's made a very active effort to really figure out what it means to have constructive criticism. Like mm -hmm. what constitutes actual constructive criticism? And He's told me that that's probably the hardest part of the classes is just that line between what is helpful and what is really not. And a lot of people shut down. I mean, being rejected is just a part of the nature of the world. I mean, just <laughs> I mean, yes. that's it. In particular with poetry. So one, I ask myself, why am I writing poetry? Is it to get published? Is it to get heard? Is it to share? Is it to do that? You know, and then, okay, so which is more important? So if I don't get accepted, I just need to try again and keep trying to work. So I work on my art. I work on becoming better. I read more poetry. Some advice also I give um, when writing poetry, because it's also daunting to like, oh, I'm going to sit down, and write a poem. Now what? Get your stack of books of poetry <laughs> that you enjoy and become bored. That's one thing. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about the psychology of poetics class we'll be teaching. And that's one of the things we're finding is creativity comes out of boredom. Try to be bored as long as you can, and then creativity will come. Or taking a shower, going into like in a chamber, like immersion chamber. Yes. And your creative ideas might come to you. So hmm. because you're closing yourself off from sensory things, like a sensory deprivation. Yes, sensory yeah. deprivation, definitely. Yes. That's fascinating. I'm trying to think about when I get most inspired. So you brought it up. Mm -hmm. You have a fascinating course that you are going to be teaching in the spring of 2019. Yes, with Dr. Jericho Hockett, uh, we'll be teaching a class called Psychology of Poetics. There's no other class like this anywhere in the world, as far as I've seen, especially in, or in the country, that we are examining all of the different aspects and intersections of psychology and writing, writing poetry, reading poetry. The class itself will become kind of a small experimental way to look at writing. So there's no poetic experience necessary. 
and it's all based on readings we'll be doing. So it's everything from the cognitive psychology and neurology and looking at even MRI scans and poetry therapy, inclusiveness in poetry. What does this mean then to people? Everything, covering all we can. And we're really excited. We're in the middle of planning for it right now. And so we're really excited about it. So yeah, even the DNA, um, what does that mean for trauma? And then how can we relieve trauma through writing? Like uh, there's a study I found even that when um, with guided journaling after three days, people who had been suffering from depression get some of that lifted. Yes. Now it doesn't go past after three days. There's not as much effect, but uh, that's amazing to think that those three days. So there is definitely something when you're writing, journaling, and connecting those different pathways in your mind. And um, yeah, and even looking at uh, how can cells rebuild? There are lots of different scientific studies on that. And so looking at how writing can do that. Poetry was an outlet for me when I was uh, suffering from severe depression. The poetry really helped with making those connections with others. I knew that we already have this idea of poetry doing that. that yes. It's a connection with emotions, connection with people, and uh, that was a way to do it. Now, that is something that I do definitely understand on a personal level. I, I'm often met with the, the trope about poets being very melancholic creatures, mm -hmm. and I often get asked, why don't you write happy pieces? Mm -hmm. And not to say that all of my pieces are incredibly dour, but I definitely take way more inspiration from writing when I'm down than when I'm happy. I like to say that I focus more on consuming my happy stimulus than regurgitating it mm -hmm. into art. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, that definitely feels very true because people will read the very solemn stuff mm -hmm. and they'll think, you must constantly be unhappy. But I'm like, <laughs> after finishing that very solemn piece, I tend to feel a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> I've been described as bubbly before. So I guess if you want to be described as bubbly, maybe try writing a lot of dour pieces. <laughs> yeah, you're really speaking to the stigma. Like people have a stigma on others that we should be happy all the time. Yes. Or um, why are you writing this down poetry? Where that is actually... A method of um, self-mental health, right? Yes. If you're depressed and you're writing about it, that you're doing something. There are horrible times in depression where you can't do anything. Yes. Yeah. So all of these stigmas that I think people hold and then like, why do you have to be so down? You know, and all that. Actually, the poetry is then helping others who might feel down to realize they are not alone. So her name's Lauren Ireland. With a thing of depression, she started writing these poetry letters to Lil Wayne <laughs> when he was in jail. He was incarcerated. It's a great book of poetry. It's prose poetry. And it is about asking Lil Wayne how he feels or how he's doing and where she's struggling. And so this connection, there's even a video of someone reading this poetry piece at like some awards ceremony. Yeah. I mean, so strange, like what? You know, letters to Lil Wayne, you know, and, uh, but it is, it's poetry and it's amazing. Or also letters to Wendy's is also a great one where. Now that one I am familiar mm -hmm. with. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's another great one. Like for me going into Wendy's every day for a year or two, that would not feel great. But those are great, like social commentary. And why do we go to Wendy's? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this might just be because me and my editor had a recent discussion about this, but you've brought up prose poetry and you've brought up experimental poetry and what I have discovered as of today, as of this interview, documentary style poetry. Mm. What would you describe to your listeners as what constitutes poetry? Oh, great. <laughs> yes. You know, a poet never stops asking this question. So that's it. You know, uh, for me, I, I think the best I can do with this one is that some kind of figurative language, right? Because with prose poetry, you don't have the line breaks. Uh, sometimes people would do the cop out where they'd say, oh, poetry is just what's not prose. You know, it's like, okay, no, that don't give me, you know, that's too simplified. I feel like there's some kind of figurative language, or even if there isn't figurative language, you have 
some kind of concept of what's going on. Some of the better Flarf poems or conceptual poems, which were two different movements, Flarf poems were created out of doing internet searches with certain words, terms, and using those. So each Flarfist had a strategy for using the words they would receive and putting them together in a poem. Conceptualists, well, now that's a whole other thing. There's kind of a negative push because of some racism that one of them had done. Mm. And then actually getting alliances with two other conceptual poets of like, racism is good. We're pushing the envelope. It's like, no, you're not. It's racism and we're not going to read you anymore. But one of the better conceptual poets had done like store names and putting them in different orders. So it's like going to the mall and reading a mall directory and just reading the same you know, name. So it is this, maybe reading it out loud would work, or if you knew the concept behind it. I know what you mean, though, like experimental poetry, or what is this? I feel that poetry, if you're not sure what you're getting, there should be some kind of concept behind it. Yes. And that concept then becomes part of the work. It's uh, something like maybe where avant-garde art, like you could see it and say, well, that's, you know, they just painted the canvas black. Or like Rothko, if you're seeing Rothko for the first time, you're going, I could do that, you know, just paint this red and this black. But if you didn't know the concept or the time it was happening, it would make no sense. Like this person is experimenting with detail and you're trying to break the mold of what art is. So that reminds me of an anecdote from when Kim Stafford was here at Washburn. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about this adorable little meeting that his father had with this uh, person at a diner or some other restaurant area where there was a painting and it was a very contemporary style avant-garde piece. And William Stafford took endless joy from the fact that the woman next to him commented, well, my five-year-old could paint that. And his retort was, but he didn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that has stuck with me all these years. And I just, I think about that. I think about that all the time. Just, well, you didn't. Sometimes... There's just the simple humanist joy of, well, this is the first time a human has done this in all of existence. Mm-hmm. Let's just enjoy that. Mm-hmm. I I understand certain mediums flow better in certain directions. Like a slam poem is not going to translate the same when it's written down versus when the original artist performs it. And then a lot of people, I mentioned earlier how micro poems are becoming very popular. A lot of people are pushing back and saying, well, two lines taking up a whole page or you're just taking one sentence and turning a line into one or two words. So Mm -hmm. you've got one sentence on a whole page and it's there's a lot of discourse there and Mm -hmm. it brings out a lot of negative feelings and sometimes bullying, like you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And If you look at something like the Wikipedia page for what is poetry, it's a long list of academic garbling of Greek history of term and all of this stuff. And it scares people off. Some people feel poetry is this incredibly academic thing. I uh, was reading a biography recently about Allen Ginsberg and how when he was first starting to write tried and true poetry all of his friends at columbia were just like saying man this isn't how you talk this is too academic this isn't you and when he died down the academic talk that's when he produced howl Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of pro-academic and anti-academic discourse and sometimes it just feels like poetry is a lot of fighting and It's interesting to hear because you are an academic, you're a professor, you're a professor of English. So you are a senior source to go to for Mm -hmm. opinion on this. And it's just interesting to hear what you have to say. Well, I'm trying to make the change within the system. So, (laughs) you know, that's um, it's interesting. Yeah. So there was even this thing called Poetry Wars where formalists were attacked by informalists or, you know, or maybe it was the other way around, like people writing sonnets and then the formalists said, no, you're doing it wrong. It's not a sonnet unless, it, you know, and then, but I think right now we're in a time where there's some academics who are embracing like what wouldn't be an academic thing or like what I see happening in Boulder at Naropa. So there are different venues taking on people who wouldn't or don't even wish to be identified as academia. 
and that's also the tough thing that if you want to be a writer and really dedicate yourself to writing, well, it's really tough to find a job. <laughs> <laughs> I was a programmer analyst before, and I just took the leap out because I really hated the corporate world. Sorry for those who know me from the corporate world. I just, I couldn't feel like myself there. I liked the programming, but kind of the red tape and the people, some of the people there, I just had to get out and I couldn't talk to anyone. So I love talking. So English was the way I could get out. Poetry saved my life many times. And that was one of the ways it saved my life. So yeah, it's, and it's tough. I guess that's why I try to still be as approachable as I can, even though you know, in the classroom, I do have a role as a professor. You know, I have to take that role on. And then I have a different persona when I'm outside of the classroom. Or I do really try to do real world working. Luckily, Washburn is a teaching college. And so I do care about students and I care about what's going to happen to them. You know, that their degrees can mean something or even if they, you know, they can write poetry the rest of their lives. Where I think it's really the best endeavor, keeping one's mental health in check as well as physical check. So it's a troubled time you know it's uh, very much we're going to be in a recession for a long time <laughs> so and everything going on in the country i'm going to start getting political but that's perfectly but fine political, you know the it's due time that we start recognizing that just because something makes money means that it's really a value and that we need to start thinking of putting resources into things that don't make money in order to create the infrastructure we need and a culture in our country so anyway there you go endowments of the arts yes um just or everything from just even building rebuilding reshaping communities and poetry is a resource and i know quite a few local poets uh, annette billings being one of them and Mm -hmm. this is i think maybe the third or fourth time we've dropped her name on the show there's been a couple times where she's worked with the family service guidance center to teach poetry workshops to children just to get them a place to go to summer mm-hmm. class wise so they have something to do which traditionally i can recall back in like the 90s and even earlier than that would be called getting the kids off the streets but uh <laughs> we're talking about preschoolers here so <laughs> but uh just giving them something to do to stimulate them intellectually and creatively which is important for that very key developmental phase of children, but also healing and trauma, going back to that. It's definitely a community service to engage people on a uh, artistic level. Yeah. And poetry is such a personal medium. I remember reading Audre Lorde referring to it being a poor woman's choice Mm. because it's something that a working class mother who's a nurse who has to put in 50 hours plus at the hospital can put some time into her day between her patients and her children to sit down at a table with a scratch piece of paper or a receipt Mm -hmm. and just write down how she feels. Mm. And it seems to be a medium that can span class and education and income and gender and religion and all facets of human identity and hardship. And Mm -hmm. it's so appropriate Mm -hmm. that a lot of your stuff, especially. Thank you. Yeah. I, focuses on trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like to think of my work as a way to approach trauma. You know, how do we approach trauma? Also, how to approach inclusiveness, and which also has its own traumas because of whatever, you know, our culture at large has done. And how do we resolve those things? So, yeah, those are really good things to think about. Yeah. Audre Lorde was amazing. Her Black Unicorn book was really, I remember reading that and just thought, this is great poetry. (laughs) And then just her essays. And yeah, she's another great poet we miss. (laughs) Yes. And now to wrap up our wonderful little visit, Professor Etzel is going to read some selective poetry. Thank you. My other mother recently passed away. And so I'm now even working on more poems to complete this collection out of the sum of two mothers because the Supreme Court ruling came out after this <laughs> book did. And so I'm trying to get a lot of those together to make a full-length book. So, so here are some of the poems from that collection. 
My mother comes out in 1983. Sandra moves in in 1985. Her bookshelves hold gardens of philosophers, hold healers, mystics, prophets, poets. With a turntable and speakers, her albums hold orchestras, tragic clowns and a ring of gods, female warriors on flying horses, sweep down to claim my dead soldiers as I am among them. Two women, out, hang each double cup in the breeze, on two wide lines, their smiles at the neighbors who spy no sign of any man, no boxers, no briefs. When neighbors across the street yell at me, you live with dykes, they do not mean how my mothers hold back flood after flood. As one mother is a nurse, the other is a counselor, a kind of therapy, down the middle, one for the mind, the other for the body. I help them to sharpen that double-edged axe for gardens, for protection, each job a work of resistance against grindstones. And now I'd like to read some from Fast Food Sonnets. I really wanted to call attention to just the fast food industry and how we dehumanize people and also uh, what women have to go through. Even in the training video, I was just shocked after seeing the training video. So this was a poem based on that. Training videos. Watch them in the break room while on the clock. Learn how to smile like the actors. As one suggests to a customer, apple pies and cookies make nice desserts included at an inexpensive price. Managers watch their own films, learn their lines when speaking to employees. Is everything okay? The male manager asks the new young girl. I noticed you are not as productive, he says with concern, assures her he's there and he cares. The restaurant is like home, with a kitchen and dining room our guests fill. He talks about employee appearance, to wear her hair up, be ready to serve. Small fry. As punishment after being called out as lazy, you are placed on the station for bagging french fries. Knowing anyone can pick up the handle, place containers on the end, and with a flip of the wrist, send the scooped fries falling down off the pile. Think of how the sun feels outside compared to the heat lamps reflecting off the back mirror. How the beach feels as salt gets stuck under your nails with the frying oil. People come in and check you out, looking hot in your uniform, as if glowing from the fluorescent rays, with the power to make many servings just by request. So that's when you knew you were in trouble, you were put on the french fry station. And so I kind of tried to make that like a, I don't know, a sexy poem. It's <laughs> <laughs> polyester uniforms would go. This is a poem about bullying again, that, uh, I think masculinity is kind of based on these ideas. And I remember being young and just totally against masculinity. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want to be a man, really. Maybe I just try to be me and not, you know, one of my boys didn't want to wear his My Little Pony shirt anymore. Oh. And that was kind of sad. And But Raiden, our middle son, he still loves listening to Pink Alicious at in night. You know, these recorded stories that are on Hoopla through the Topeka Shawnee County Public Library. <laughs> let's plug them okay but so i just try to let's let them be who they are cleaning the flat grill i scrape the carbon off of the flat grill as another member from the kitchen is off let go after the manager yells at him tells him to mop the back room before leaving the grill scraper is sharp takes off the brown ashes the manager jokes with me about something as a way to let the boy know he is not wanted. I push down hard to get the residue off the metal, wishing for smooth silver again. The manager turns his back on that young man he laughs at. I do my best to nod, smile, continue to scrape away any hope for this surface to be clean. And so, yeah, speaking about gender roles, so this was based on a true story. When the Happy Meals came out, 
and they had Barbie or Hot Wheels. And immediately people were calling them boy or girl toys and that even the register was programmed boy or girl so we would know it was outrageous to me. And so I actually reprogrammed the registers. The manager let me do that. I said, sure, I'll reprogram them and whatever. And then the next year in their posters, they even said it should be only referred to Barbie or Hot Wheels or, you know, whatever the the actual toys they are and not genderize them. Or But still people I've heard from that go to McDonald's because I do not go to McDonald's. <laughs> um, but people who I do know that they still will post on their Facebook. Yeah, I was asked if it's a boy or a girl toy. It's just... It's damaging. Here's the poem, though, called Toying. Barbie or Hot Wheels, I ask the mother when she orders a Happy Meal for her son. Many employees call the Barbies girl toys as Hot Wheels are for boys. I argue a boy might want a doll and a girl might dream of racing someday. The store manager allowed me to change the buttons, reprogram the registers that said boy toy and girl toy. However, the customer yells at me, how dare you imply my son would want a Barbie toy? I stand looking just as confused, upset, holding the toys, one in each hand, as if they need balancing, an act. I will go to my secret wars. So again, this uh, collection is from a time that was of trouble, but of wonder too, Dungeons and Dragons and Marvel comic books. And I, yeah, I'll give a shout out to Bards Against Hunger, my friend, Kevin Rabus, who's the Kansas Poet Laureate, he's putting together, helping with an anthology of poems about food insecurity. And I contributed a couple of poems to that. And one of them was because I could have had some help with food. It was just my mother, my sister and I, we were really struggling. She was going to school and working. and But I still thought like comic books, I wanted comic books more than food, I think. So I did that. <laughs> So that's a poem in that. And so that's where Marvel Comics comes in. And I think the toughest thing about this collection, well, one thing is, yeah, I do get some skeptics. Like I remember even this one person in Lawrence, he said, well, how long did it take for you to write that? This isn't normally a question you ask someone when they're, <laughs> you know, they have a book out and you don't ask them, well, how long did it take? You know, it's you're interested in the work or whatever. And I thought, yeah, this is really is a jab kind of measuring the measuring, worth. Yeah, it's. It took a long time to read through lots of material to get the sentences. And then I had to write my own sentences. And then I had to figure out how to use Excel to keep track of where the sentences came from. <laughs> and then I had to get the permissions. And then I also had to get them published. So, And as a, uh, a super senior history student, I would like to just give you kudos for how properly sourced uh, and formatted your uh, your pieces are. You have on the spot <laughs> sourcing and citing, and uh, that is not easy. Let me tell you, after three ninety five, that's <laughs> not that is not a uh, thing to laugh at. Right. And that's it, you know, that Excel worksheet, I had to figure out a way to make it easier on me. So, And it's interesting because the poets were the first to really give me permissions. It's great because Bill Hooks wrote me a letter saying I could, like she had found the letter because I sent both emails and letters. So I have Bill Hooks' little you know, handwriting and permission, so I'm keeping hold of that. Jealous. Yeah. A couple of amazing things just happened. A large TV transmission tower collapses under the weight of the ice, along with many trees and large tree branches. A mark of their life without protest, without rage. A nightmare on Elm Street. A phrase like, I advocate, does not imply this kind of absolutism that is suggested by I am. A tool made out of thought. A totalitarian dictatorship over my childhood is over. So now what? A transition from middle to high school, from 13 to 14. A transition that crosses through the unknown X. A wave of sheer force, accustomed to Topeka's customs. After a radioactive spider bites me, I develop superpowers of fragility. All molecules obey my every whim, all through the night. All week I've been seeing my bear in my dreams, almost paradise. So I like that one that um, 
all molecules came out of uh, Secret Wars. That's what Molecule Man said. And then the all week I've been seeing my bear in my dreams is from New Mutants. And that uh, is actually going to become a film, hopefully soon. They delayed it, but it had the Demon Bear saga in that. So it's really great. <laughs> and then I also used song titles and film titles. So Almost Paradise is a famous song from that time. And what was it from? Dirty Dancing or something? Or no, what was that from? Footloose? It it's goes, <laughs> Almost Paradise. That's We're knocking on heaven's door. Probably Footloose, because I yeah. know Dirty Dancing top to bottom. That's right. No, it's not Dirty Dancing. <laughs> Thank you, and I got to sing. <laughs> My armies outwit all you bullies. My bad choices and crushes. My cassette tapes are blank as I attract bad magnets. My discipline is mind control, a struggle within. My fellow Americans, I am pleased to tell you I just signed legislation that outlaws Russia forever, says Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan was really the person I wanted to point out what passages he said, because I didn't agree with him, but I still felt it was important to have him in the collection. Russia and the U.S. were playing these games. Wait, is this 1984? What? <laughs> I, uh, Zinger. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, so, you know, and that's one thing I found doing this project, too, is, like, I even have a line about being in a recession, you know, and uh, Russia, who's blaming who, like, the Republicans de- blaming the Democrats for being in a recession, and it just seems so familiar still. I think that's one thing when you're doing a piece with documents and with history that the poetics part is that it's pointing out that you're in this context and it's still applicable to what's going on today. Mm. I feel that way also about any period pieces. You know, I first ask, well, why did they make this period piece movie? You know, there has to be some reason. Does it relate to what's going on now? Or does it relate to something that needs to be said about then? Or Because otherwise, like, why do it? Poets do their research. I'm really doing very much a concept-based research-based project to write poetry. Although when I first started writing poetry, it was just poem at a time. I'd write a poem, I'd write another poem, and then I somehow saw like there were connecting themes. Uh, Now I find the best way for me to write and to fight writer's block is to really envision what the book would be like first, to think what's the concept behind a book I'd like to write, and then what would I pull into it, and then what would those poetry titles be and then pretty soon, yeah, you, you have no need to have writer's block if you already know what you'd like to write about. So you could just write about whatever you feel like writing that day. That was very fascinating. Very tried and true to the professor in you. You turn it into a little <laughs> miniature lecture, but I don't mind. And I don't think our listeners mind either. It's just free education, and I'm all for that. I'm just, yeah, I. it's so funny because, yeah, I guess... I don't have anyone to tell these things to or talk to. So when I get a chance, I just start going into bending an like, ear. <laughs> what I think about it. What do I think about this? Yeah. Well, what do you think poetry is? What do I think poetry is? <laughs> oh, man. I just feel like poetry is these little human brain nuggets. And it's getting way less obvious the difference between poetry and other things as social media progresses because you know there's plenty of facebook posts that i see that are like little micro poems in themselves and they're just someone getting something off their chest Mm -hmm. i just feel like they're concentrated active pushes to bring a subconscious idea to light like found poetry Mm -hmm. that's someone who is finding words from something else, whether it's the blackout method or it's the cut-up paper method, and you're turning these totally unrelated words into a piece together. It's the human tempering with words, which then would bring the people being like, well, what about (laughs) non-word poetry? And then it's like, oh, come on, we're splitting hairs. (laughs) But yeah, that exists too. I totally believe in visual poetry as well. I think poetry is just a collection of thought. Best poetry I like is when you feel moved by it. Well, thank you so much for coming. And thank you you for engaging our audience and engaging me as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, have a good day. You too.
And now to read from listener submissions. Today we have poems from Fred McDowell. Now he doesn't consider himself to be much of a local poet, but uh, let's let the words speak for themselves. Dogs are people too. We barking dogs who howl at night try to fight the primal fright of a hopeless world with no light. When master's gone to bed and the monsters are in our head, leer and peer from front and rear, it's unclear what's real or queer. The sneering thoughts have taken hold, and now that master's heart is cold, broken ancient packs of old, and left us in the dark. We whimper and bray till the break of day, now that master's gone away. What's that I see? A figure sway? A smile gay? With teeth displayed? Oh, master's come to play. Typical Walk in the Woods Kratom crate them as you please, like a wartime war crime, spouting disease, uneasily teasing trees, trails foreseen, eternally unclean. The mean means of seeing, seeing, cleaning, served, creating craters in perception. I corrected the erection of phallic fallacy you spewed at me. Seize the means of reproduction, you instructed me to imbibe tree leaves, but tea leaves green streaks and ketamine dreams feverishly stream like the mud clings to your feet as we walk through the trees. Ought to be. Slam the slanderers' hands with hammers. The clans will clamor for hamlets and sandals to trample the squatters who plot her demise. They say that Goddard married an otter, and her father's an otter too. But if Goddard fick daughter's father's an otter, her daughter ought to be too. And lastly, thrown axes hit trees. She vainly strains to feign her kind, a broken-hearted lass. Can't cope with hope for undaunted folk to lift her off her ass. She walks the woods her father held, emptier than the casks. Their sweetness secure, drought away by friend that didn't last. A cold wind wept through the trees, the mangled creaking in her heart knocked her to her knees. And like a flash of fantasy, a keen boo offered his hand, which she took mercilessly and walked upon the land. Such sights behold to virgin eyes clouded by divergent skies. The turgid size of city life slaughtered right off her back. His skin was warm, a newborn sun, but he shunned her wicked ways. It wasn't long till he was gone, and with him her warm gaze. Alone again, her father's sin bore fruit among the trees, Another face, an aimless pace. She climbed unto a piece. Thank you, Fred. And with that now comes to our final part of the show, our call for submissions. Remember, I want it all. I want your weird stuff. Doesn't matter what shape, size, or smell. Submissions can be sent to our Facebook page, Sunflower Sutras. But if Facebook isn't exactly your jam, you are more than welcome to email poems or possible interviews or just book recommendations to tara.bartley at yahoo.com. Thank you so much for listening. Salon Gafol.